When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to episode number 75 of Unformidable, where we take a look at some of the less heralded myths in our beloved franchise's quirky history, because to us, every player who dons the orange and blue is, in some way, unformidable. I apologize at the start for my long absence. Uh, My last pod, number 74, was tragic. We took a look back at the life and the untimely death of Pedro Feliciano, Unfortunately, I was away for a time dealing with the personally personally tragic issue as my stepfather recently passed away from cancer and you know was just dealing with that. And now he was a Yankee fan, but we loved him anyway. In particular, he was a Yankees fan of a particular era in the 70s and the 80s, and a, and he was of a particular background, being Italian. So I struggled a bit, but I finally found what I thought was some fitting common ground for he and I, given the general subject of this podcast, that being a local Italian lad, perhaps more known as a Yankee, but with a cameo year with the Mets as they tried unsuccessfully to hang on to the tail end of their 80s glory years, Mr. Rick Cerrone. Richard Aldo Cerrone was born May 19th, 1954, in Newark, New Jersey. He grew up in and around the tri-state area, 
primarily Jersey, where he attended Essex Catholic High School and eventually moved on to Seton Hall University, where he excelled in baseball and, from what I heard in discussing this podcast, may have known and perhaps made, a, made advances towards the mother of Amazing Avenue's own Brian Salvatore. And while Rick Cerrone might not have been able to catch her eye, he did catch the eye of baseball scouts. He was quite the college baseball star. He played on U.S. amateur teams in 1973 and 1974 before being drafted in the first round, uh, seventh overall pick by the Cleveland Indians in 1975. I can't imagine we would see this nowadays with a catcher, pretty much any prospect, but at age 21, uh, the seventh overall pick reported to AAA for the Indians, and after only 46 games, made his Major League Baseball debut the year he was drafted. I mean, you don't hear many players doing that, I just can't imagine that with a catcher. But at any rate, Rick Cerrone's first professional game was August 17, 1975. He was inserted into a blowout technically taking the lineup spot of the great Boog Powell. Cerrone went into catcher, Alan Ashby went to first, and Cerrone caught the last two innings of noted wife-swapper Fritz Peterson's 16-hit complete game. In a 14-5 Cleveland win, he got his first career plate appearance and lined out to shortstop in that game. His first professional hit would come five days later, in his first professional start, a single to left off of Kansas City's Paul Splitorf. But overall, he would appear in only seven games in 1975, and would pretty much repeat that in 1976. He spent most of that season in AAA, but did get called up very briefly and appeared in seven more Major League games for Cleveland, which would be all the games that he would play with the organization that drafted him. That offseason, Cerrone would be included in a deal to the expansion Toronto Blue Jays, who were getting ready to make their professional debut in 77. Uh, Cerrone and John Lowenstein went to Toronto in exchange for designated hitter Rico Carty on December 6, 1976. The fledgling franchise had also acquired the aforementioned Ashby from Cleveland in a separate deal, and hoped that the two young catchers would be potential building blocks for the franchise. Cerrone was now 23 and seemed to win the starting job out of spring training, or at least he won the honor of being the starting catcher in the Blue Jays' first game, and the first game in franchise history. Bill Singer threw the first regular season pitch in Toronto Blue Jays history in in a light snow at Exhibition Stadium in pre-Dome Toronto, and Rick Cerrone on August 7, 1977, caught that first pitch in Blue Jays history. He would also go 2-for-4 in that game, but any chance of a breakout star Rookie of the Year season was quickly thwarted as five days later... Saroon broke his thumb on a foul tip in a game against the Tigers. The thumb would cost him six weeks, or he'd be sidelined for six weeks, but by that time, Ashby and Ernie Witt had become somewhat entrenched behind the plate. So once again, for the third straight season, Saroon would spend most of his time in AAA. Uh, But he did get called back up in August as the two Toronto catchers struggled. He hit his first major league home run 
in his first start after his recall, which took place on August 17th, 77, against the Texas Rangers' Nelson Bryles. He and Ashby would really split time behind the plate for Toronto in 78, both appearing in about 80 games or so. Ashby was the slightly more offensive catcher. Uh, Cerrone would hit only 223 that year, but he did begin to establish himself as one of the best throwing catchers in the AL. He threw out 40% of base runners attempting to steal off of him, 33 of 82. Uh, but And apparently, whether Toronto prized defense or... Uh, you know, whatever, but Ashby got traded after the 78 season, and Cerrone was the clear starter in 79 and had another strong season behind the plate. By modern metrics, probably not too impressive, only a 0.7 war, according to baseball reference that year. He had a 652 OPS, but he, at age 25, he caught or appeared in 136 games, uh, had seven homers and 61 RBIs. Uh, so pretty decent counting stats. Again, uh, a burgeoning reputation as a defensive catcher uh, with a strong arm. And and again, had a high draft pick pedigree. So Cerrone was young and promising. And also, as mentioned, from the tri-state area. Undoubtedly appealing for a team that just underwent an incredible tragedy and loss. Uh, the Yankee organization, of course, was still reeling from... Thurman Munson's tragic death, uh, so as soon as the 79 offseason kicked in, uh, one of the Yankees' first moves was to orchestrate a trade with Toronto for Rick Cerrone, along with Tom Underwood and Ted Wilborn, in exchange for Chris Chambliss, Damaso Garcia, and Paul Mirabella. Being from the area, Cerrone was of course thrilled by the trade and didn't express any fears about the pressures of replacing the Yankee captain. Uh, saying, sure, there'll be pressure, but I'm not going to try to duplicate Munson. I'm not going to try to take his place. I'm just going to be my own man. Uh, whatever his philosophy was, it certainly worked for him, as Rick Cerrone, in his first year in New York, enjoyed what would far and away be his best professional season in 1980. Cerrone would hit 277 that year with 14 home runs, 85 RBIs, in 147 games, uh, good for a 4.2 war, according to baseball reference. He threw out a league-leading 51.8% of runners attempting to steal. Uh, that overall performance earned him a 7th place finish in the American League MVP voting that year. 1980 was, of course, the season the Royals finally got over the ALCS hump against the Yankees, uh, but not because of Cerrone, who went 4 for 12 in his first postseason appearance with a home run in the series. So he may have seemed to be on an elevator very much on the way up, but he quickly went from Yankee and Steinbrenner favorite to target. Although in true Big Stein fashion, he went back again to favorite once he was gone. Uh, Cerrone... Uh, there are probably two reasons, as far as I can identify. He struggled in 1981, uh, it, both in the regular season and in the 81 postseason, uh, performing decently, uh, hitting 333 with a homer in the first ever American League Division Series caused by the strike, uh, but struggled mightily in both the ALCS and the World Series, which the Yankees dropped to the Dodgers. And during that postseason, the feisty Italian Cerrone, as my stepfather surely would have approved of, would not take any guff from his blowhard boss. 
after a loss in the American League Division Series against the Brewers. Steinbrenner apparently uh, went into the locker room and ripped into the team for showing him up, for not caring, for not playing well. And Sarone apparently responded by swearing at Steinbrenner, uh, who you know, threatened to get rid of him the following year. Um, and Sarone responded, you know, what do you know about it? You never played this game. But probably more galling than yelling at Big Stein, who did seem like he could take it. Uh, prior to the season, Sarone won his arbitration hearing, uh, getting a hefty raise to 440000 for the 81 season, uh, over the 350000 the Yankees had offered. And as an aside, uh, at the beginning of the year, I started to read the book Lords of the Realm by John Haler. Uh, I'll probably discuss it much more in depth in my next podcast, but you know, I was just inspired to read it because it's this really long, it is long book, but it reads like a, I don't know, it's a very, very much a page turner, and it's, if you've never read it, it's pretty incredible history of baseball's labor strife and uh, you know, just some of that stuff from the 70s and the 80s and the dawn of arbitration is fascinating and stuff that they're still, I don't know, the owners are still grousing about today. Uh, it's very fascinating. The arbitration hearings seem to be a real sticking point and Sarone's uh, win in arbitration and particularly his contract that he signed following the 82 season uh, though he didn't have a great 82, again, uh, he re-upped with the Yankees in the free agent frenzy of after the 1982 season for four years and $2.4 million. And I was pretty young back then, but my memories of Steinbrenner, he could take you talking back to him, but he, was, he would be much less happy if he thought you were overpaid and not living up to that contract. And Saroon did continue to struggle uh, particularly offensively, and struggled with a multitude of injuries, as is not unfamiliar for those wearing the tools of ignorance. And while he loved playing in and around his hometown, uh, he began to lose playing time. After the, In the 84 season, he was in a timeshare with Butch Weiniger, so he ultimately waived his no-trade clause when asked and got sent from the Yankees to the Atlanta Braves uh, after the 1984 season. This kind of truly began the journeyman phase of Cerrone's career, as he would switch teams seven times over the next eight years. He would only spend two consecutive years in one organization in 1988-89 with the Red Sox, and in those seven team switches, he would return to the Yankees twice. As again, once Cerrone was gone, Steinbrenner pined after him, just like uh, Billy Martin, only on the playing field. Uh, most of these seasons, Cerrone was a backup, uh, averaging, you know, in the two to four home run range, 15 to 30 RBIs a season. Um, he had a slightly more impressive 87 back with the Yankees, and 89 season with the Red Sox, um, but perhaps most notably, or at least most entertainingly, in 1987, Rick Cerrone pitched two innings for the Yankees, throwing a scoreless inning on two separate occasions for a career pitching line of two innings pitched, one walk, one strikeout. I do not know what he featured, and, you know, if he actually had a solid fastball a la Desi Relaford, or, you know, if it was just small sample size luck, but 
kind of got to love a position player with the two scoreless innings on their on their baseball reference page. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. That third and final stint with the Yankees uh, ended after the 1990 season. The Yankees released Cerrone in 1991, and he was more than happy to stay local and skip his way across town to the orange and blue. Um, as soon as he cleared waivers, uh, Cerrone, still living in Jersey, uh Noted after signing with the Mets, he wanted to play for a contender, and he would love. To, he was hoping to stay close to home. So, apparently, he expressed to his close friend Lee Mazzilli uh, that he had interest in playing with the Mets. Mazzilli passed this info on to Buddy Harrelson. So the Mets just assumed uh, the responsibility for the the major league minimum, uh, which at the time was a hundred thousand uh, dollars, picking up the waived Cerrone, who had been waived while under contract. Um, now, at the time, you know, Cerrone was 37. He harbored no thoughts of a starting job. Uh, the Mets had a 27-year-old Mackie Sasser, who seemed to be entrenched as the starter, and a defensive whiz of a backup, or purported defensive whiz of a backup in Charlie O'Brien on the roster as well. Uh, upon signing with the Mets, Cerrone said, I'm really not here to compete for a starting job. I'm here to help those guys. I've learned you can help a team win even if you're on the bench. So he might have been slated to be a third catcher and veteran presence on the bench. But if you want to talk about making a good first impression on your new team, and yeah, let's be honest, a former Yankee might not get a huge benefit of the doubt in Queens, uh, but Saroon made his Mets debut with panache and style. In Game 2 of the 1991 season, the Mets, the 1-0 Mets were trailing the Phillies 1-0, going into the bottom of the ninth at Shea. As if to rub some salt into the wound, former Met Roger McDowell came on to shut down his former team for the save. But with one out, in his very first at-bat as a Met, Saroon would take the third pitch he'd see from Roger McDowell into the left center field bleachers in Shea Stadium. I was about to say City Field. I cannot believe that. It's been around that long. At any rate, Theron would tie the game at one. In the bottom of the tenth, Hubie Brooks would come on to make a Met return, a successful return to the Mets of his own to give the Mets a walk-off win. The Mets would move to 2-0, and and it looked like another season of exciting contention on tap in Queens. And here's where you could cue the Ron Howard voiceover. It was not. 
1991 would be a terrible year for the Mets in general, and but also in relevance to Rick Cerrone, it would be a terrible year for Mackie Sasser in particular, as that's when the hacker would begin to develop the yips and encounter difficulty throwing the ball back to the pitcher, uh, which really effectively uh, short-circuited and ultimately defined his career. I kind of irrationally loved Mackie Sasser as a kid and enjoyed his slashing, hacking, hitting style and his bat waggle, but that was that was just painful to watch uh, watch him unravel that way in 1991. And unfortunately, Charlie O'Brien was on his way to yet another sub-200 batting average. And as another sidebar, uh, God, did I loathe Charlie O'Brien. You know, no offense to him, I guess. But when he reinvented himself as Greg Maddox's personal catcher and started to hit adequately and for pop. I don't know. I know a lot of players have left the Mets and thrived, or thrived and come to the Mets and then promptly fallen apart, but for, there was something just particularly galling, because, I mean, a Charlie O'Brien played appearance is about the worst offensive player I remember, other than Ray Ordonez, just, just felt like a hopeless at-bat, and seeing him become not a hopeless at-bat was... Shocking. But I digress. All this is to say that as the 1991 Mets went 77 and 84, uh, their first losing season, their first season below second place since 1983, Rick Cerrone at 37 actually went on to play the most games at the position for the Mets in 1991. Actually was, according to baseball reference, the team's sixth most valuable player, uh, just behind what will surely be a soon future podcast subject Jeff Innes, and he was actually the second most valuable position player behind Hojo uh, with a 1.7 B-War for the Mets in 1991. He'd only hit one more home run for the Mets, and but he, yeah, his slash line of 273, 360, 357, uh, Gave him a 717 OPS, a 104 OPS plus for the Mets. It was actually one of only the only season besides that 1980 season where he was above 100 uh, in OPS plus. The Mets leaned on him a lot in June and July as they I, they were kind of still trying to hold on to contention and obviously faltered as both of the younger catchers struggled. Uh, but the workload probably wore him down as uh, he faded a bit down the stretch. Uh, and as the Mets were clearly not going to contend in 91, uh, his playing time dwindled, as, and the team tried to get the younger O'Brien untracked. Uh, Cerrone made his last appearance as a Met on October 5th, 1991. He pinch hit for O'Brien, grounded out, uh, making the last out of a one nothing loss to the Phillies in the penultimate game of the season. It was a game in which uh, Terry Mulholland outdueled Anthony Young, who fell to two and five on the season, uh, but looked like a promising young pitcher. Um, unfortunately, as bad as '91 was for the Mets, uh, 1992 would be even tougher for both the team and for AY. O'Brien would catch the final game of the season, which you all may know as the absurdly overplayed Mets classic, David Cohn 19 strikeout game. I liked David Cohn as a Met, and 19 strikeouts is pretty impressive, but 
I don't know why I have to watch that on Endless Loop on Mets Classics to relive, again, the first disappointing Mets season, or the most disappointing Mets season in my in that 83 to 84 to 91 range. It's absurd how often that is on SNY. But once more, I digress. Uh, Cerrone would play one more not-quite-full season in 1992, ending his career kind of where it began, uh, in Canada. Well, I guess it began in Cleveland, but at any rate, uh, Cerrone became the 21st major leaguer at the time to play for both Canadian big league clubs by suiting up for Les Expo in 1992. Uh, Darren Fletcher was slated to be the Expo's everyday catcher, but he went down to injury. Uh, so the Expos in 92 for quite a while featured two 38-year-old catchers, Cerrone and another former Met, Gary Carter, who had returned to Montreal for a swan song with his original franchise that season. Cerrone hit his final career home run on April 21st, 1992 against the Pirates. He had his final, I guess you would say, big offensive day of his career against the Mets and against Anthony Young on June 8th, 1992. He went 3-for-4 four with two doubles and two RBIs, as Young, who had started the year 2-0, dropped to 2-4. and four. Uh, Yes, that was Game 4, I believe, of his 27 consecutive losing decisions. Actually, in the game, Young was the only thing that kept the Mets from being no-hit by Ken Hill, though, as his infield single was the only Met hit of the game. Very appropriate, as many of those 27 consecutive losses were really not Young's fault, as the 92-93 teams were atrocious. But as for Saroon, his playing time would dwindle, uh, Fletcher would come back, and of course Gary Carter you know, got the bulk of the backup time. After that June 8th game, he would record only two more career hits. He would go 0 for his last 14 at-bats over June and July, leading to his release. Um, I would imagine that 0 for 14 would really have to hurt as Cerrone ended his career with 998 career Major League hits, falling painfully short of the 1,000-hit club. For his career, uh, Cerrone hit 59 career home runs. He hit uh, 245 for his career with a 301 on base, uh, 343 slugging uh, for a 644 OPS. His career war, according to baseball reference, was 8.1. But again, a pretty robust robust 1.7 with the Mets. And I know I already kind of gave you most of his numbers for his one full Mets season. Uh, I found it very amusing since his name was mentioned several times, when you scroll down to Cerrone's career similarity scores, the second most similar batter to him in his career was Alan Ashby. So it's no wonder Toronto had a hard time deciding between Cerrone and Ashby when they were both on the roster. A few notable other similar players were Jerry Grody, Butch Weiniger, Mike Sosha, and Joe Girardi, insofar as Cerrone comps. But there was no comp for that Newark, New Jersey uh, attitude and panache and style. Uh, Cerrone also had a notable, uh, interesting off-the-field career, both during his career and afterwards. Uh, Immediately after his career, he served as an analyst on Yankee Broadcast's 
uh, in 96 and 97, and then for the Orioles in 1998. During his career in 1981, he recorded a single uh, entitled A Long Home Run. I have not listened to it yet, but I think I will as soon as I'm done recording this. Uh, He did it and donated any royalties to a victim's fund for an Italian earthquake in 1981. And he actually founded the independent Newark Bears franchise in the Independent League and sold the team in 2003. As mentioned earlier, Cerrone went to Seton Hall, and he was actually the first baseball player to have his number retired by the Pirates. Uh, Four others have gone on to have the honor. Uh, Craig Biggio, Jason Grilly, Mo Vaughn, and John Valentin. Uh, followed Cerrone in that honor. In his retirement, he has lived in and around Jersey, in Tianic, Montclair, and Woodland Park, and at last report continues to live in in Jersey or split his time between Jersey and Florida, where his three daughters live. Definitely, reluctantly, more remembered as a Yankee, but again, someone I know that my stepfather particularly liked, and who put in a solid season with the New York Mets. And for that, Rick Cerrone is unformidable. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find this and all of our Amazing Pods wherever you get your podcasts. Original music by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at WolfRR, W-O-L-F-F-R-R, and the show is at Unformidable. Thank you, and as always, let's go Mets.